Jimmy, Jimmy Crane, Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Jimmy Crane's an improv nerd. Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Oh, Jimmy, Jimmy Crane, Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Jimmy Crane's an improv nerd. Jimmy Crane's a nerd. He's a nerd. Oh, yeah. Hey, everybody. This is Jimmy Crane, and this is another episode of Improv Nerd. And I say that this is another episode of Improv Nerd, but it's our 50th episode of Improv Nerd. It, that is an accomplishment. It's something I'm really, really, really proud of. And I know that surprises you because I am mostly an Eeyore in life. Uh, and I don't know why I minimize it. You are really going to enjoy this show. We went all the way down to the Omaha Improv Festival to record it. Our guest is, you know him from Community. You know him from I.O. West. He does Quartet and Dorisky, Craig Kakowski. Last weekend, Lauren and I moved into our new three-bedroom townhouse uh, in the suburbs of Chicago, and we were debating if we were going to ask her parents to come in. They're, they're in their 60s, and they live in uh, Pennsylvania, and I say Pennsylvania. Really, they live in the Philadelphia area, but Lauren says I don't pronounce Philadelphia correctly, so I'm a little self-conscious of saying Philadelphia, e- even on this podcast. So they came in. And they helped us uh, on Saturday and unpack boxes, um, basically putting like pots and pans and dishes away in our kitchen and setting off our smoke alarm because they insisted on self-cleaning our oven. That night we went out for dinner. And then the next day, her father wanted to fix the screen door. He wanted to take it to the hardware store. He had actually, that night at the hotel, he had gone online and he found a hardware store to uh, that would fix it and that was open on Sunday and it was supposed to be really cheap and he insisted he wanted to pay so uh, we took the screen door it was one of those sliding screen doors that goes out to this little it's like a little balcony with a uh, fake grass you know astroturf and uh, a little Weber grill we put it in the Honda uh, Honda CRV and it was so big that it, it, it we had to kind of cram it in there and it went all the way to the front of the car, pushed up against the dashboard, and in between the two cloth seats. And my father-in-law had to had to scrunch over to the on the passenger side, over towards the window, so so he so his head could clear. So we drove to the hardware store, and it was the hardware store that I I go to uh, on a regular basis. I've been going to it for three years, and it's the the people that work there are basically kids. They're like I don't know how to describe them. They're they're like probably two or three years out of college I mean two or three years out of high school but they're not in college yet or they're they're kind of waiting like they don't they know they don't want to work in a hardware store their whole life but they're they're not ready to go to college so they're they're kind of in between life so we go in there I didn't even know this hardware store fixed screens uh, but apparently it did and so we asked somebody one of these kids and they said, well, you, you got to take it to uh, this, this service desk, which was in the middle of the paint department. So we go to the paint department, and my father-in-law gets three paint samples, and he gives them to me, and he's like, you're going to need these. I don't know what for, but he gave them to me. They were filling out the paperwork uh, to repair the screen door. And then, all of a sudden, this 72-year-old guy who worked there, for, uh, and I did not know his name, 
He was, he's 72 years old, a retired uh, science teacher. His name is Frank, but I didn't know at the time his name was Frank. Recognizes me because two weeks before, he had just taken my Artist Low Comedy intensive workshop. So I don't know his name, and here's my little trick. When I don't know somebody's name, uh, I introduce them. I say, oh, this is my father-in-law, Dale, hoping then they're going to say, oh, my name is Frank. But he didn't say that. We talked about, we talked for a couple minutes, but it was, it was cool that he, he had recognized me in the hardware store. So we get home, and let me just tell you about my, my, my in-laws. My in-laws don't ever say, they're not very complimentary. They're, they, they're, they're very withholding with compliments. Unless, like for desserts, like when we go out to dinner, I've noticed that they'll say nice things about a dessert. Or my father-in-law actually will say, oh, this is a good meal, I want to go back. But in terms of like for Lauren and I, not, not very generous on, on, on the compliments. Generous in other areas, not on the compliments. Now you have to also understand that I don't really give myself much value in terms of my career. I don't, even though I teach and I do Improv Nerd and I think, oh, Improv Nerd, it's really, you know, it's not a network television show and I, I'm not in movies and I don't write on Conan like some of my friends do. So for me to be recognized at our local Ace Hardware is a big deal for me. And so when we get back to the townhouse, my father-in-law starts to talk to his wife and he says, you know, he tells, tells her what happened that Jimmy was recognized by one of his students. And the thing he seems to be the most proud of is if, if there's ever some repair that needs to be done, Jimmy knows Frank at the Ace Hardware. I really enjoyed doing this interview with Craig Kukowski and it was even more fun to do it at the Omaha Improv Festival for an out-of-town audience. Craig is an amazing improviser, and he's an amazing teacher. And I actually sat in on one of his classes, and I forgot how good he is. And in this interview, he talks about how he got into improv, how his experience with studying with Del Close, and also the other people that he's worked with over the years. You might recognize some of the names. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. Oh my we, God! Do we get the monologue? We, we got no, well. We we don't need the monologue. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we need you. We need. It's so good okay. to see you. Thanks good for to see doing you. it. We've got Evian water here and love it. Yes, as per the writer. Yes. Now, you grew up in in uh, Woodbridge, Washington, right outside of uh, our nation's capital. Woodbridge, Virginia. Okay. And you. <laughs> thank you. And you're just, I, I don't want to confuse it with the Pacific Northwest. Please. Because uh, we have a lot of fans out there. Okay. And you described yourself as a kid who'd entertain yourself for hours. How did you entertain yourself for hours? Uh, I, uh, one of my earliest memories is I had a Noah's Ark, with, uh, literally with two of every animal. And I would just, you know, create scenarios for the animals. And, uh, and Noah and his wife. And... Uh, and <laughs> Jpeth Shim and Ham. Uh, actually, I, did, I didn't go to Sunday school or have any religious upbringing, so I, I, I don't know how I know the names of Noah's sons. But um, because you're in the trivia, 
I'm into trivia, I am. That was another thing I did as a kid, which is I read uh, encyclopedias, almanacs, uh, dictionaries, thesaurus, side. Now, would you just go like in your bedroom and just spend hours reading this stuff? Yeah, my parents often caught me as a kid uh, after they had sent me to bed reading under the, the, by the door with the crack of light that was coming in. Uh, like when I was, you know, five or six years old, I would read uh, by that light. But you know what I find interesting is you say that you weren't, you were smart, but you weren't a good student. I was a pretty bad student, uh, actually. I didn't get good grades till my senior year of uh, high school, when I finally needed to apply myself and get into a college. So, uh, but I was in like gifted programs and stuff like that. I just, uh, I never really applied myself. And you also said that you were, you were. Um blissfully unaware of how much of a nerd you were until you got into middle school. Yeah, I would say middle school is easily the worst three years of my life. I mean, In what way? It's probably the worst three years of everyone's life. Um, if you're doing life right. Uh, anyone who's like, seventh grade fucking rocked, man. That's somebody who's not done. Not having a lot of success later in life, but um, <laughs> you know, and you've interviewed a lot of uh, improvisers and comedians for this podcast, and you know, it does feel like people tend to skew like one way or the other. Like people who just had just a horrific childhood, right? You know, with like no support from anyone, you know, and then people who were, uh, you know, my parents. Are, are just very loving people. My household laughed a lot. You know, we're a very tight knit family. But you, there but, was a, there was a competitive streak with you guys. Yeah, uh, we, uh, you know, I'm playing my mom in Scrabble online currently, <laughs> uh, and uh, just kicking her ass. And, uh, and it's because she abused me for years as a kid in Scrabble. Uh, in one way, give me an example. Give me an example. Uh, well, I think usually when you play a kid, like, you let them win, right? Or at least let them believe that they're going to win. And I think every game I ever played with my parents, um, I, we had a pool table in the basement, and I used to, you know, practice for hours to get up the nerve to go up and ask my dad, oh, will you come down to the pool with me? Uh, and then he would just, you know, uh, he would get them all in on the break and in the game in about 10 seconds and just go back upstairs. <laughs> so is there any truth that they had, they had three kids because they wanted to beat them in games? Yeah. There... That may be true, oh. yeah. So, uh, so I think it, it, it did teach me a toughness and a competitiveness um, that I still have to this day. I don't, in what way? Because in Chicago, I don't remember you being competitive. I remember you being focused. Hmm. How did uh, your competitiveness show up in improv? Well, I, and I think it was probably most uh, acute during those, you know, when you're in your 20s um, and you're like trying to prove yourself and like you're kind of unformed as a person still. Um, and I, I think stage time was precious back then mm -hmm. too. And my first improv teams, we would perform maybe once every two or three weeks at most. And so you really had to make the most of that stage time. And I, I really felt like, not that I wanted to win the show or be the best person in it, but like I wanted to show up and I wanted to look good in it. And w if I had a bad show and three weeks to wait for the next show, I would just agonize over that bad show. And, you know, you, I would, uh, you know, 
you shouldn't do this, but like just thinking about scenes, improv scenes I was gonna do. Would <laughs> 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 you pre-planning them? Would you come head? up with a line to oh, start? Oh yeah, okay. come up with initiations right. and characters. And then would you play it out in your head? Like if he said this, I'd do that. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> all, all that stuff. But I the the best team at the time was the family. Okay, uh, tell us who was on the family because it's the, just like. Unbelievable. The family was uh, Matt Besser and Ian Roberts, two of the founders of the UCB. Uh, Neil Flynn, uh, who's the, on the middle Mill. and Scrubs. Uh, Adam McKay, Adam McKay, director of Anchorman and uh, mm. all those Will Ferrell comedies. Ali Farinakian, who founded the Pitt Theater in New York City. Uh, Miles Stroth, who's a great teacher uh, out in, in LA. In LA. Uh, so those were the six guys on that team, uh, and those guys were also my coaches. Uh, and they were the ones setting the bar highest at the time in Chicago. And whatever Herald team I was on, we would always open for them because they were the headliner. And uh, whatever we did, the family would always be a little bit better. So if we had a just okay show, they'd do a good show. If we had the best show we've ever had in our lives, they would go out there and then blow us away. <laughs> you know? Which was very humbling to see that of like, and you knew that those guys were watching our show and they were competitive with us. They were also competitive with each other. You know, really not in a dickish way, just kind of like in a health, it was a healthy So how did a like young, that. competitive Craig Kakowski deal with that? Uh... I worked hard. Like I wanted to get better. So you to, you used it to motivate yourself. I think so. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that's maybe the competitiveness that I had growing up that my parents instilled in me. I think other people might get daunted by that of just like, well, I can't do that, you know, and give up a little bit. I, I felt like I, I I say this sometimes. We're talking about Adam McKay specifically. Um, as somebody that I really looked up to and, and idolized. And I, I think I was kind of daunted the first few times I watched him improvise uh, because he would improvise kind of poetically, like just like gold would come out of his mouth that sounded like something you spent hours like trying to write. And, but after getting to know him, I'm like, oh, he's just, that's just him. Right, and not, a, you know, I think I've gotten, uh, I, in the Besser interview, I said, not, not a not a tradition. Not a, a great actor. Adam McKay was. No. A Adam McKay was pretty much a guy who, amazing mind, amazing yeah. mind. But but really not much depth as, as an actor. Sure. That's why he uh, went into writing and directing. <laughs> I think. Yeah. And, and a great guy. He's really he's really good yeah. at it. Um, but you know, and just ridiculous comic premises. Oh. Uh, just at the drop of a hat. So, but. The first several times I saw him, I'd be like, well, that's good improv, and I can't do that, so I must not be able to do good improv. Uh, but then I realized, oh, if that's just him, he's being the best possible version of himself on stage. I have to find whatever the best possible version of Craig Kikowski on stage is. So everybody's going to reinvent this art form in their own image. There's no right way to be an improviser. And you can find inspiration from people that you enjoy watching, but you've got to kind of carve out your own territory and do it in your own way. And that's what's cool about this art form, I think, is that every improviser reinvents the art form and they're a unique individual and nobody's ever improvised the way that that person improvises. Well, why is it that people don't see it that way? You know, I've been doing this for a long time and I struggle with that, like, oh, yeah, maybe if I just do what I do, I'm gonna be fine. Yes. <laughs> right, but why do you think people today don't, don't just embrace that? Like, this is who I am, you know? 
Well, I think you, uh, you know, you find role models and you tend to emulate them. So uh, I think I probably was my first couple of years watching the family. Uh, I wa you know, I didn't know who I was as a person yet. I didn't know what my voice was as an improviser. So I was probably doing my imitation of Miles Stroth, Matt Besser, Adam McKay, Dave Koechner, Kevin Dorff, the guys that I enjoyed watching, Jimmy Crane. Uh, so I was doing, uh, you know, a watered-down version of what I was seeing in other people. When did you find your voice? Was it it? Because you started at I.O. Was it at I.O. or was it at Second City later when you were doing Main Stage or ETC or even Touring Company? Um, I think definitely not Touring Company. <laughs> um, when you start at Touring Company at Second City, you're doing other people's scenes. So that definitely doesn't help with the finding your individual voice thing because you're doing best of material that other uh, actors have created there. But it was it was great comic learning. I think it was specifically a show that I did called Close, Close Quarters that Noah Gregoropoulos directed. Um, and that was the hardest I worked on anything. That was a show that we spent about six months rehearsing before we unveiled it in front of an audience. And we rehearsed nine hours a week, three times a week. Uh, and that was Rich Tallarico and Bob Dassey, who I still play with today in L.A. in a group called Dassarisky. Peter Gwynn, who you've who interviewed wrote for, before. And he's also wrote for Colbert, Colbert Report. Rapport. Uh, Stephanie Steph Weir. Stephanie Weir from Mad TV. So uh, we were, you know, we were kind of the next generation of good people, but we hadn't really had that show, like that intensive uh, process yet, working with a great director like Noah. And he just called us on our bullshit and wouldn't let us get away with anything shallow. Like he pushed us to play at the top of our intelligence and to bring uh, a, a little, lot more depth to our characters. So I think that was the first time that I really found myself thinking, um, oh, I can play characters. Um, I can lose myself in a character a little bit and I can create a character that's three-dimensional and not just a, a shallow what is your what is your approach to characters? Because your character work is, it's not funny voices. It's not a physicality. It it it's 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 you, but w with more of a a point of view. Yeah, I think that's the key thing. Uh, you've got to find what makes this particular person unique. Um, so you know some people are outside in some people are inside out you know you start with uh you know you either start with the broad strokes of like hello i'm a character you know? <laughs> um, or it's more just like uh the uh the mentality you know the guy has just been uh attending bar the same place for 40 years he's seen it all he's gonna have to kick out that guy again tonight you know so it's more just like getting into the thoughts and the mentality of the character. And I think if you can really feel you are that person, then it's going to have some outward, uh, you know, I, I'm probably adjusting my physicality or voice slightly to adjust to being that guy, but it's not a conscious mm -hmm. thing. And how much, because you, were, uh, you, you majored in theater in William & Mary, how much does your acting spill over into your improv? Well, I would say I was a theater major, but I really had no idea about acting when I left college. Mm -hmm. Not that, that you know. Had you done plays and stuff? I had done several. And you plays. didn't know what you were doing. No, okay. no idea. Um, 
all, I said my lines nicely, <laughs> and went I, to the I memorized them, and I hit my marks. Right. And, and they were like, hey, where's the cast party? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and William & Mary is a very good school, uh, but it's a liberal arts school, and it isn't, isn't really a conservatory theater program. Um, it, you know, you were getting the broad strokes of everything. Um, but it really wasn't until I did improv, and then you realize that acting is just all listening, and just being in the moment, and... You know, in improv, you're literally hearing these words for the first time, but in scripted work, you still have to pretend I'm hearing these words for the first time, and this is how my character is reacting organically in the moment. And then a group from college was, were all supposed to go to Chicago to do improv, and then what happened? My college group? Yeah. Yeah, we, we kind of made, you know, a blood oath of like, we're going to Chicago, <laughs> you know. How many the, people was it? Was it? Uh, maybe six or seven okay. of us. And there was one guy who had gone to DePaul before he transferred to which William & Mary, which right is in, in Chicago, and, he, and he's Group. like, there's this place called Second City, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, you know, it's the Mecca, and we've got to go there and learn improv. You know, I didn't even, when I moved to Chicago, I'd never heard of I.O., I'd never heard of Del Close, mm -hmm. um, but I knew that Second City was there. Um, and so he and I were the only ones who ended up moving. He auditioned for Second City. Who was the guy? Uh, his name is Christopher Obenchain. Okay. Uh, he, he was probably the funniest guy in my college troupe. Okay. Uh, I've heard that now that he's living in Hawaii and playing and doing improv again. Okay. Now, which is great. Um, but he auditioned for Second City classes, did not get in, and immediately gave up. <laughs> and what <laughs> and did you ended up moving out of Chicago about six right. months. So later. you're the only one there then. I'm the only one so there. Do I don't know a soul in Chicago. It's cold. Let's just say it's cold. Very cold. <laughs> I moved to Chicago the first week of February 1992, and it was the coldest I have ever felt in my life. I had no idea how to deal with that kind of cold. Uh, and I didn't know anybody, I had very little money, I had no job, uh, and my friend that I moved there with gave up on improv right away. And I read a newspaper article about the three major training centers in Chicago at the time, which were the Players Workshop, the Second City, and the Improv Olympic. And I, I was like, well, Improv Olympic, um, that's like three blocks from me. Because I, I, I lived at Clark and Belmont. And also, oh, they do the Herald. We did Herald in college. Um, because my college group had actually been trained by a group from Yale that had been trained by Sharna Halper and the, the Purple founder. Crayon. Uh, the Purple Crayon. Right. That had been trained by Sharna Halper and the founder of the I.O. Um, but we had no idea what we were doing with the Herald. Uh, just, just, it was just like plays in college. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and so I was like, okay, I'll study there. So it was kind of a random thing. I went to see a show. Um, I, uh, I, first I had called up the, the number uh, to sign up for classes. Which in those days went right to Sharna's It was just Sharna's personal number. Yeah, yeah, it was a personal number. Um, so I signed up for classes over the phone. Then like a week later, I'm like, oh, I bet, you know, the, the classes weren't starting for a couple of weeks. Like a week later... Uh, I had to, uh, I was like, oh, I, I guess I should see a show there before I sign up for classes. And uh, so I, in, in the ad in the reader, it said reservations recommended or reservations required. So uh, I called and I was like, uh, I'd like to make a reservation for tonight's show. Uh, the name is Kikowski. Is, is, it, is it the same Kikowski is taking classes? Uh, <laughs> Which is Sharna. Sharna. She was taking uh, the reservation. And... <laughs> 
And she charged me for the show. Um, whereas my class was starting like two days later, I would have gotten like a student ID and got free classes. She knew very well that I was starting classes. She still charged me and my friend for the show. Also, we were the only audience there. So, so, Do you remember where it was, Wrigley side? Yeah, it was okay. upstairs at the Wrigley okay. side. This is before IO had a permanent space and was just kind of like shuttling around. It was a bar upstairs. Different bars yeah. in town, so. Reservations were definitely not required. Well, you know, so you know what I find interesting too is, and we've talked about this on this podcast. Del Close, who was you studied with, I studied with. Del used to, he would start his class it, to do a monologue, and it would go anywhere on a good night, 15, 20 minutes to an hour. And you have a story where you actually, uh, you you know the story I'm talking about. Well, I. I got tired of him just talking at the beginning of class. Like, I wanted to get up there and play. Well, tell us a little about what he would talk about. I mean, it, well, it could be anything, but his, his main reason, I think, would be to inspire you, you know? So you do weird things in Dell's class, like sometimes you're like, you just like bang on the floor for a half hour. Uh, and be like, well, it's similar to the tribal rituals of the Maori people of New Zealand. Um, how long do you think you were up there? Um, like 25 minutes, you're up there for 28. <laughs> <laughs> this thought would like you'd lost yourself in the tribal right. ritual so much you'd lost all sense of time. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, he'd talk about. He'd talk about his career, uh, you know, he'd talk about things he'd been reading lately, right. science fiction, right. you know, and sometimes, you know, really interesting stuff, because he right. was a fascinating, intelligent guy. Um, but then there'd always be a guy in the front row who'd be like, so you knew Belushi, right? I'm uh, like, well, I did heroin with Belushi, yeah. And then, and then he'd start telling drug stories, right. and that's really what I didn't want to hear. Right. Because it would be the same guys, like, asking him the same kind of um, celebrity anecdotes. And so, uh, one week, I just kind of, like, I just, like, got up on the stage while he was, he was talking. And he Which, up. I mean, nobody would have done because he was such a presence. He was a scary asshole. He was, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and he looked at me, and I, I was just too naive to even know that it was like not the thing to do. So you weren't doing it to be a dick. I wasn't doing it to be a dick. I literally wanted to get up on stage and play. And I was hoping of like, well, maybe this will send a message to him of like, we're ready to play now. Uh, but he looked over at me and he was like, well, I guess we're starting. Uh, so like he was actually cool about it. What did people say after class to I don't, you? I don't remember. Like, cause that was really, I mean, that was ballsy. Yeah. Now, we talked a little about the family, and you said they were a huge influence. And there was also another group at the time that, that I was with yeah. that was another huge influence. Tell us a little about the, because both had different styles. Yeah. Uh, that group was called Jazz Freddy. Right. And uh, that was you, Kevin Dorff, Dave Keckner, Rachel Dratch, Brian Stack, Pete Gardner, Noah Gregoropoulos. Teresa Mulligan, uh, Carlos Jackant. Yes. Uh, Chris Reed was in there. Chris Reed. Uh, uh, Miriam Tolan. And that show was, that was actually in a theater. Yeah. A, the Live Bait Theater, which was a legitimate theater space that you guys rented out. And you would do it on uh, a stage that actually was set up for a play. 
you know, it was like on the off night of that play. Yes. So it'd usually be a set for an existing play, and it you're was, doing an improv show kind of in front of that. The first one we did was like, uh, it was like, um, on the bow of a ship. Do you remember this? Yeah. Yeah. And there was one that was in a bathroom too, right? And there was like a toilet on stage. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. Hard not to want to use that. In right. Um, but, uh, but that was very kind of slow play, very theatrical, very character driven, relationship driven. Uh, and I, I think that was, you know, one of the shows that really inspired me just because of the depth of it and just to know like, okay, improv doesn't have to be fast and funny the whole time, uh, you can find deeper laughs uh, by engaging in character and relationship more for bigger payoffs that come later. Um, the family was just very experimental. They were, ex they were ex experiment with form. It was more chaotic. Uh, I think Dell described them as uh, six guys falling down the stairs at the same time and all landing on their feet together, uh, which is a pretty good description uh, of it. And they were more they were more game-orientated, more, game. more concept kind of they stuff. They were fast, yes. super fast, super energetic, uh, a lot of physical stuff. Um, so, you know, those were kind of two extremes. And uh, I still, you know, so it's kind of like, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of the names of the characters. The two sergeants in Platoon that were like, uh, there was like Willem Dafoe and Tom Berenger, which was like the dark side and the light side that Charlie Sheen is drawn to. Um, so what did you, you what, did, what, what, what inspired you? This Platoon metaphor is really going over well. <laughs> They'll get uh, but, it in Portland. They'll get it in Portland. <laughs> sure. Um, but uh, to this day, I still like doing nice and slow and character-driven stuff, and I like doing Harold and Fast and Furious stuff too. And I, I hold both of those things with. You know what I weight. found interesting too, is that when I asked you about, we did a little pre-interview, and I asked you what your your highlights were in in improvisation. You said it was, and you mentioned Close Quarters, and you also mentioned directing a show, JTS Brown. You didn't say the shows, you said the rehearsal process. <laughs> yeah. Which I thought was interesting. What is it about the rehearsal process that you enjoyed more than the actual shows? JTS Brown was similar to Close Quarters in that it was a long rehearsal process. That was more like nine months. Uh, and we were just experimenting. Of like, At first it was a group that we put together, like there was no special goal to do a show. We were just like, we're going to experiment with form and see what happens. Uh, which would never happen today. No? I don't think it would happen today. Just People are too impatient and they're doing yeah. too many things. Uh, so that was a group of 12 that asked me to coach them. Uh, Jason Sudeikis was in that group. Uh, Ike Barinholt, TJ Jagodowski, um, John Lutz, who you interviewed for this. A yeah. bunch of great people. Um, and uh, I loved the experimentation of the rehearsal process. And I loved the, the failure. Uh, but then also... There's something about once you get people really comfortable in rehearsal and really willing to try anything, there's something deeper that goes on there that uh, that I felt like for both shows, Close Quarters that I was in and JTS that I directed, that we never quite achieved in front of an audience because at that time, because we were still youngish improvisers, there's still a self-consciousness of performing in front of an audience and trying to entertain and please them rather than like bringing the depth that we had in rehearsal. I've always felt that there's so much, in a lot of ways, some of the best work is in the rehearsals. Do you, do you think that's true? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's what I found for that. Like, uh, 
we still talk about this scene that Rich Tallarico and I did on the first day of close quarter rehearsal where we were the two least popular kids in band camp. Uh, and, but we were best buddies and we were just like the sweetest guys. And uh, we were picked on by everybody else in band camp. Uh, and then at one point I turned on him and I was like, go play your tuba, fatty. Uh, <laughs> it was just like this moment that was like painful and uh, and funny and just the idea that the second least popular guy would turn on the least popular guy. Uh, All right, so I'm going to name some people that you work with at I.O., at Second City, throughout your career. Okay. I, I'd like you to give me your impression of them and what you learned from them. Okay. Jason Sudeikis from SNL. Jason Sudeikis. He's a great basketball player. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, he is. He's, one of, he's, he's the best basketball playing improviser I've ever seen. He's got a great handle, uh, great three-point stroke. Um, <laughs> well, he was, so, he was super young when he first came to Chicago, and he was super ambitious. Right, and super uh, confident, almost to border of arrogance. Yes. Okay. Um, but he was... Uh, he had this exterior that was very... Uh, cocky, but he was actually very humble uh, in some ways, and very you know may, maybe uh, you know some people might call it a suck up, but uh, you know uh, he was humble because he wanted to learn from people, mm -hmm. and uh, he was when I coached and directed him, he was very he was a sponge, just taking in everything, and I and I think he studied a bunch of places, and he went to see a bunch of shows, and he absorbed everything that was there, and he worked his ass off. Adam McKay, director of Anchorman. Uh, Adam McKay is just is still the smartest improviser I've ever seen, probably the most articulate, and just had just one of the most skewed comedic visions. Uh, and I think it really comes across in Anchorman and most of his stuff, which is like, it's ju it just comes from this really warped point of view that still still feels real in a weird way. Jack McBrayer. Uh, I still play with Jack McBrayer every week in L.A. Uh, in Quartet, right? In Quartet. He lives in L.A. now after having done 30 Rock. Um, well, he's uh, he's just sweet as pie, and he's. <laughs> Do you think um, there's a dark side to him? Have you ever seen a dark side? No. To him? <laughs> Have you ever wondered, like, God, you know? Because he is the nicest guy I've ever seen. In he really pride. is. Yeah. Well, he's somebody who he. I mean. His thing in improv was just of like I'm Jack McBrayer, right? Like literally to the point where like uh, sometimes in a scene like where he's supposed to be a character, you'd be like I don't know, I'm Jack McBrayer. Right. Um, and, um, so I think though occasionally he will play characters. I think there was no pretense other than like I'm this guy from the South yeah. and I'm very innocent and I'm you know always going to be sweet as pie in every scene uh, and audiences. Love it. Love it and ate it up. And uh, he has a career because Adam cast him in Talladega Nights and Tina cast him in 30 Rock uh, to be Jack McBrayer, you know? Uh, which is John amazing. Favreau, director of Iron Man, Elf. Uh, I did not know him very well personally. Uh, he was at I.O. Yeah, he was, a, he was a performer and teacher when I first started. Right. Uh, and the two teams when I first started were Victim's Family, which is kind of the precursor to the family, and Corky's Callback, which was Favreau's team. And uh, those were the, uh, the two groups that I watched a lot. And Favreau, I think the very first show I saw, he was the one who impressed me the most because he was just in every scene, you know. Well, he, he had kind of the reputation of being a steamroller. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I asked Sharon when I interviewed her, I said, he kind of had a hard... He didn't kind of get 
the, the do he deserve maybe or he had a hard time at I.O. She's like, you know, she she didn't think that was the case. But that's how I remember. Oh, yeah. I think people called him Big Rig. Yeah. Uh, yeah because, you know, he would just come in like a truck through every scene. <laughs> right. You know? um, so I think he was probably less of a team player, but he was very impressive to watch. He was he was super funny and uh, had a lot of a lot of characters in his wheelhouse. Matt Besser. Matt Besser was my coach for a couple years. I still uh, do stuff with him occasionally in L.A. He's uh, he's tough. Uh, like he was a tough coach. Like he worked us hard, and he was very hard to please. So again, of like. The striver in me, the person who wants to do better, he kept setting the bar higher and higher. Did he have a trust fund? <laughs> um, that's an inside joke. That, Listen yeah. to the Matt Besser interview and, and uh, John Lutz from 30 Rock. John Lutz, uh, he's another person who worked his ass off. Like, uh, and I, I listened to his interview that he did with him, and mm -hmm. I, like, he was very upfront of like, I sucked for years. You know, uh, but he worked really hard, and he's just somebody who's just like can turn on the emotions like that. Like if you ever get a chance to see him live, uh, I think he's in New York, usually playing with Scott Adsit or right. with two two great improvisers. Yeah, um, and he's just totally in the moment at all times. And he brings a uh, an emotion. Uh, he brings a vulnerability that a lot of improvisers are afraid to go to. Don't you think? Yeah. Uh, he's another person who's very sympathetic on yeah. stage at all times. One of my all-time favorites, Stephanie Weir. Stephanie Weir is, uh, s this isn't me, but somebody once said of her, like, she plays uh, 40 different housewives from Odessa, Texas. <laughs> so, um, but the, they're all different. So, um, she's just got an unlimited range of characters. She's an incredible actress. Uh, great listener, and um, uh, you did a two-person show yeah. with her where you guys improvised one scene for an hour, right. no character shifts. And let me just tell you, she carried me through that whole show. <laughs> I mean, honestly, there's no question. And I, at the time, I wish I could go back to this, Greg, I was so jealous of her talent. Do you mm -hmm. ever get jealous? Um, sure. I think uh, more so when I was in Chicago because I think there's very much a track, you know, that you're supposed to go through. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you start at I.O. and then, you know, you, you go to a touring company and then ETC and the main stage and then you're supposed to go on to a TV show. Right, or set or set or Night Live, you yeah. Know. Um, and so I think there's always kind of like comparing yourself to like other people of similar, you know, uh, pedigree. Of like, oh, what that, that guy got it. You know, what about when your sister, your younger sister, Liz? She's eight years younger. She follows in your footsteps, yes. comes to Chicago, goes to Northwestern, and then she gets hired to be a writer on SNL. Yeah. Were you jealous of that? Yeah, we haven't spoken since. Are you serious? <laughs> you are so. <laughs> I was like, I came here first. That's what I would. No, do. I was super, super happy for her. Not even a little. Um. You know, I, I never wanted to be a writer for SNL, and she was a writer for SNL. I've never wanted to be a writer, period. I consider myself an actor. Mm -hmm. uh, like, again, of like, I was a bad student, so to me, having to turn in a script is like having to turn in a paper. <laughs> you know? And of like, when I hear about my friends who have deadlines of just like, oh man, my script's due on Friday, you know, you got to pull an all-nighter, I'm like, whoo, I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> you know? Um, so I, I think... 
definitely in LA you can create more opportunities for yourself by being a writer as well so mm -hmm. it's, it's it's something that uh, I've missed out on but when people have success in that area because I'm not writing you're okay with but <laughs> okay but what if someone gets a sitcom or an acting job that you I think at this point you know so many people have had so much success yeah I know that uh, you know I'm <laughs> I have a hard time with. It. I'll tell you the, the person that I had the hardest time with, and yeah. it was Tina. Uh -huh. Tina Fey. You don't think she deserved it? No, no, no. I don't think jealous. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> no. Are we recording? Yeah. Okay. I don't think jealousy is about that she didn't deserve it. She definitely deserved it. It's not about that. It's about where's mine. Uh huh. You know. Um. <laughs> Well, again, of like she's a creator. Like she's, she's a creator. She's a hard worker. She, I mean, every, every yeah. you know, back at Second City, she fucking w w wrote her ass off. Yeah. I mean, she was real driven. But see, that's the thing. People think jealousy is about like, oh, they didn't deserve it. But it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with me. Like, you know. <laughs> well, I think uh, the hardest thing to do is like wait around for the phone to ring. Of just like, so like you've got to be out there doing stuff. You know. Uh, and like I said, writer performers have it easier because they can create their own right. stuff, you know. Um, but regardless, I mean, you've got to be out there doing your thing uh, and doing it at the best of your ability. Uh, and then hopefully people will see you. You'll get stuff from that, you know. And I think the less you care about it and the less you want things, the more things present themselves. To you. I'm, I'm gonna have to try that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's improvise. Okay. okay. Um, well, let's take a suggestion, right? You sure. wanna take a location? What do you wanna do? Location is great. Did I throw you with the Tina stuff? Not at all. Okay, okay. <laughs> I think maybe I was thrown a little bit. <laughs> I feel a little sad about that. on the stage is kitchen a kitchen great. great all right so you hear kitchen what what's the first what, what, what is your your process <laughs> <laughs> my process in hearing kitchen because um, I don't have anything <laughs> um, well it's you know it's a mundane suggestion. Okay. It doesn't mean, I don't mean that's a bad suggestion. I just okay. mean it's a common everyday mm -hmm. location, you know. Um, so, you know, the the gut instinct is to be, you know, two people in their own kitchen at home, right? Living, uh, who live together, you know, well, the, maybe the fighting over the dishes, dishes maybe, or the pay um, the rent. So, you know, but there's no reason it can't be the kitchen um, of a greasy spoon or the kitchen of a five star restaurant. Mm -hmm. Or somebody else at the bow of a ship, which I started thinking about cruise ships. So, like, could be the kitchen of a cruise ship. Okay. You know? So, I, I think um, if the suggestion, you know, leads you toward um, pre programmed or stereotypical choices, I think you've got to deliberately go off the beaten path with, uh, with that suggestion in some way and still honor it, but do something that's going to be more interesting for you. Okay. Great. I still don't have anything. <laughs> so I hear kitchen and I think 
to myself, I go right to you, the, the typical like, oh, we're just gonna, we're gonna be two friends in the kitchen, we're just gonna go to a relationship yeah. scene. So how do I play against that? Um, or do I wanna play against it? I'm throwing that out as a question. <laughs> Follow me. Okay. I've always wanted to study with you. I've heard you, your knives are sharper than any other chef in town. <laughs> this is true, Bradford. It is true. Please. I'm worried I'll cut myself in the knife. <laughs> it is okay if you cut yourself. I cut myself many times. Many, many times. You're allowed, you cannot make a mistake when you are making food. Food. Yes. You say it as if you're so general. <laughs> what you do, you're an artist. Uh, Everything you put on a plate is a work of art. No, no, I am not an artist. I'm not an artist. I had your scallops I last know. night. <laughs> yes. it, I, I had to rush them out. I, it, it, it's what the, the owner said. He said, Jeff, he goes, go get the scallops. I am not an artist. No. Picasso, he was an artist. <laughs> Monier, he was an artist. Monier? Yes. <laughs> Monier. He had a little restaurant uh, not far <laughs> Best seafood you ever tasted. You put it in your mouth. You didn't even have to chew it. It was buttery. Oh. Mm -hmm. And that's how your scallops were last Oh, they were like butter. No, no, they were not. <laughs> you come here. I, uh, I, I am just, I am just a cook. I'm not even a chef. <laughs> I want to an apprentice with you. I will do anything. I understand, but I'm going to be honest with you, Bradford. It is a waste of your time. <laughs> Go ahead, chop. If it makes you feel better, chop. <laughs> I was married once. <laughs> I've heard of her. <laughs> You were famous for getting into fights. Yes, I was. We almost had a child. But uh, I let this business, cooking, get in the way. And you know how it ended. With her death? Yes. I did not kill her, it was a suicide. I, I know. I no! Know. I know! Right? They say it, it was... Uh, they said under suspicious yes, circumstances. Yes, yes, but it was not. She took one of my knives. I did not stab her five or six times. She took one of the knives and went into the bathroom. I knocked on the door, but it was too late. I had a big party of 20. Those are tough. How do you serve those parties that are so big? You have to do it with your heart. How can you put out 20 plates and have them all be works of art? You don't put the plates out, you let the waiters do the work. <laughs> <laughs> you remind me of me when I was your age. 
I'm very flattered to hear that. You're welcome. I have a lot more hair. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also very successful with the ladies. <laughs> Do you know if Elena is dating anyone? No, she is uh, single. Oh man, she is hot to trot. Yes. <laughs> but we have a relationship. <laughs> you and Elena or yes. you and me? No, me and Elena. You said she was not single. I anymore. said she was single. Yet you have a relationship? Yes. I do not want to... Eat where I shit. <laughs> so I'm telling you, she's single. Wait, you consider making food shitting or you consider dating her shitting? Dating her is shitting where I eat. <laughs> you see, don't come in here and try to um, disrupt the, the apple cart. I'll leave the apple cart there. Yes. <laughs> we have some, such a great variety of apples. I mean, who would knock it over? You are speaking in metaphors. Yes, I am. Renoir spoke of metaphors. He was who I studied with. Renoir? Yes. <laughs> who had a restaurant down the street. With Monnier? Yes. Monnier and Renoir. Yes. <laughs> It was a wonderful time. I will leave Elena alone. Please. What about Katerina? She is pretty hot. Yes, <laughs> Katerina, she's beautiful. A little crazy at night. She drinks a little too much. That's what I like. I like them crazy. <laughs> you don't want to eat while you shit. <laughs> <laughs> Margaret, the hostess, what do you think of her? She's playing. <laughs> she reads her book all night. She uh, is slow to see tables. Yes. <laughs> she is for you. <laughs> Thank you, chef. No one has called me chef in 10, 15 years. No one has come to want to apprentice. They think I'm a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> and you? I know you are not. Or if you are, <laughs> you didn't mean it. <laughs> Aren't you worried about serving so much seafood we're depleting the oceans? Yes. <laughs> you have an opinion on everything, don't you? <laughs> Is there something wrong about having an opinion? No, I'm just making an observation. I do have an opinion on everything. War. Sometimes necessary. <laughs> Marriage. If it can be avoided. Rock Cornish hen. It's a tough bird. Rock Cornish hen. It's a tough bird? It's uh, smaller than the chicken. <laughs> it uh, needs to be seasoned. It is. It always needs to be seasoned. <laughs> it needs to be gently stroked. Please put your hand on it. 
put your hand on it. Do you want to be a chef? I want, I want to, be, to a be a wuss. I don't want to be a wuss, no. All right. Put your hand on it. Don't fondle it. Put your hand on it. <laughs> what am I supposed to be feeling? You're supposed to be feeling the connection between the rock Cornish hen and your heart. Now what are you going to do with it? You want to slice it up? Right now, before it is, you even put it in the oven? <laughs> You're going to serve it like that, raw. <laughs> no, I want to season it. I'm going to trust it. Oh, now I see doubt in your eyes. <laughs> before you were with a conflict, with the women, you knew everything. With war, you had an easy answer, but not with the rock Cornish hand. <laughs> <laughs> I've never cooked one before. It is a difficult bird. Don't cry over the bird. All right? They put salt into the bird. <laughs> What's the matter with salt? It's a seasoning. Right. Not for a rock Cornish hen. It is pepper. It is paprika. And it is uh, something that I don't even have on the shelf. Love. It is not over there. <laughs> you gestured over there. <laughs> Do you have it in your heart? Like the love you had for your wife? Yes. Mm. Love so passionate that I might have to kill something. <laughs> yes. Or let it stab itself. <laughs> You are smart. You are smarter than I. If you would have killed her, I bet you nobody would have said you killed her. <laughs> Compliment taken. <laughs> Don't pick it up like a wuss. Pick it up like it's the breast of a woman. <laughs> What, what are you going to I do? Don't know, I don't know. Put it back, put it back there. Until you decide what you're going to do with it. It's like uh, Katarina's breasts, or? If that helps you, it's like Katarina's breasts. Supple, very supple, young. <laughs> Make love to it as you pick it up. <laughs> Fair enough. Now what are you going to do with it? Going to cook it. Yes, that is right. Going to cook the shit out of yes, it. Yes, that is right. There is the passion I am talking about. I'm going to cook the shit out of it at 350 degrees yes, for 45 yes, minutes. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Put it in there. You will go in there. Yes. You will like it? Yes. There you are in charge. You are in charge. That is the one important thing. It doesn't matter. You are in charge. You are the boss. Now we wait for it to cook. We wait. <laughs> Thank you.
fun. So what did you think? I enjoyed it. I, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the reason I said uh, follow me <laughs> is, uh, is I like to, uh, I like to gift. Uh, my partners. So okay. So where were you? So where where, where was the when we're in the first gift start? <laughs> <laughs> they, may, they may never have come. But, uh, you know, um, knowing that you felt uh, heady about it, or of like I feel a little blank. I wanted to give you power. Okay. Uh, so you gave me high stats. I gave you high stats. Okay. So which you know, is which is great because my habit is always to play low stats. That was a wonderful gift. Cool. So it started right there. Um, <laughs> and um, and for people that can't see this in the podcast, describe how you started the scene. I mean, in the silence part. In the silence. Well, I think I just looked at you. There was a yeah. And then maybe gave you a smile. And just kind of like, you know, a little deferential to you. Yes, yes. So, you know, I'm hoping that you'll feel that power right away. Um, you know, status is important in scenes, but it's much easier to convey higher status than somebody else than to convey lower status. Because if you start by treating somebody like shit, they usually kind of snap back. Mm -hmm. And it's two people kind of fighting each other for status. Mm -hmm. But if you give power over to somebody, they always love to take it. Right. <laughs> so um, so I, I found that that's much easier to do. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I just like the idea of... Um, I like fine dining, but I don't know that much about it. So, like, just doing a doing a scene at a fine dining kitchen, or maybe this was a kitchen that was a you know trying to be fine dining, but if like if they hired this uh, you know disgraced former chef, um, this might not be you know the top of the line. And he also he said he's not the owner, you know. Right. So if, like he's working for another guy, you know. Yet um, it, it's almost the feeling of like. You know, it's still kind of like the dynamic of like, oh, you were the guitarist in my favorite band and you guys never became famous, but I love you guys and I have all your albums, you know, was kind of the dynamic between Well, I almost got like, there's four people that come to that restaurant a night. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's, this guy is really sad, you know, he yeah. killed his wife and, you know. <laughs> and then I got two things I got worried about. One was the accent, you know, and I just went off you, basically. Yeah. And the other thing was like, oh, Towards the end, is this a teaching scene? And and how? What, what did you? What was your take on it? First of all, the accent was impeccable. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> we were, you know, we sounded exactly like the natives of the country that we were from. Okay. <laughs> uh, whatever that was, you know, um, Central Europe somewhere. Um, but uh, teaching scene is one of those improv buzzwords okay. that is ultimately meaningless. You know, to explain. Uh, well, uh, you know, it's it's a thing that improv teachers tell you not to do. It's like don't do a teaching scene, um, but of like um, a an apprentice chef working with a master chef who has killed his wife and is disgraced. Um, that's interesting to mm -hmm. me. You know, of like as long as it comes from character, as long as the who is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the danger of, uh, I think what people mean when they say teaching scenes is you're trying to make the what interesting, and one character has no knowledge, and the other character has all the knowledge, and they're trying to teach them how to do this thing, but there's no character or relationship involved with it. So I think as long as scenes have a strong who involved, the what could be whatever you want. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, people get these taboo what's of like, you're not supposed to do this, and so people get in their head 
uh, about it. But, uh, and that's, you know, probably you know, like conveying the recipe is probably the least interesting thing right. about it, you know, but it's more, it's more the how, mm -hmm. you know, so of like the, uh, the love, you know, is the important thing. So right. it's really about this, uh, you know, and you had mentioned like that you guys never had a child, yes. you know, so there's also kind of a father son dynamic mm -hmm. thing going on there. So of like me wanting this character's approval and this character trying to, you know, find a, a son figure. Is know. that was that a want in your head that you wanted my approval? Yeah. Okay. And we're, how, I, I love people that use want. How when when did you? What part of the scene did you discover the want? I think right away. Like I said, you know, I uh, I wanted to make you a higher status character, and I wanted to be kind of prostrate to you, and I wanted to learn from so, you. So 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 you got the suggestion. We we, we de deconstructed it a little, and then immediately you had an emotion, right? Yeah. And and a want. Yeah, I think the want is more something of like, oh, now I can articulate it. So it's mm -hmm. not like. I want his approval. It's not like I'm thinking about it in conscious thoughts. I'm feeling it. Okay. And now that the scene is done, I can talk about it in the abstract right. a little bit. But uh, I think the more you can feel scenes rather than think them, the easier So, Because a lot of people, and I'm one included, is like, oh, I've got to have a want in my head. You know? You're saying, for you, it's just a feeling. Yeah. Okay. We're going to, we're going to, did you want to talk more about that? Uh, yeah, I was, okay. I just, Thinking that you know improv is hard when you just have to go through the improv checklist of, of behaviors you're supposed to be doing, you know, because in any good scene, like here's one thing of like you're not supposed to do teaching scenes. Well, we just did one, it worked okay, you know. So uh, any good improv scene is probably going to violate one of those improv guidelines that they tell you not to do, and the reason that scene is good is because you violated that rule, you know. So. Uh, the sooner you can think character thoughts rather than improviser thoughts. And improviser thoughts are things like, what is my want? What is my vote motivation? Why aren't people laughing? What's the game of this scene? Right. <laughs> you know, those are all improviser thoughts, and I don't think they serve you any good. Character thoughts are like, this guy's a master chef, and I want to learn from him. And that's easy to play, mm -hmm. I think. So the sooner you can start thinking character thoughts rather than improviser What thoughts. would you have done differently in this scene? Um... You know, the guys that I play with, uh, Bob and Rich, are incredible in their object work. I wish we had done more, uh, just kind of like unconscious, just like preparing dishes and right. Because you know? yeah. it's kind of vague of like, clearly there's no urgency to make any dish right now. <laughs> you know? Um, now, I like talky scenes anyway, right. you know, and uh, I usually find that with Bob and Rich, they do the bulk of the environment and object work, you know, so I, I just wish... Um, that I was more able to compartmentalize my brain and that I can be totally on point with you and listening and uh, and then just chopping up a million fucking things and putting them out while doing that. Dassey can do that, I can't. I kind of need to, like, I will do object for work for a while, then I will look at you and listen for a while. <laughs> so, like, still after all these years, it's not something that's natural behavior for me. Why don't people... Um the younger generation, it seems like... Oh, uh, this younger generation. <laughs> we, both, we both teach. And we yeah. think there, there doesn't seem to be the same, I don't know, passion for object work. It seems to don't than when we were coming up. Would you agree? I don't know about that. Uh, like I said, I never really... 
embraced it? I never really. I don't know if I had a passion for it. Right. You know, I've always <laughs> wished I could do it. But better. didn't it seem like it was more important. Again, it's like uh, Pete Holney, who's a guy we know from Chicago. Yes. He was like Mr. Object Work. Right. And he was somebody and he, that, with sound effects. With sound effects. <laughs> he would do his own sound effects. Right. He'd too. open the cap. Let your beer. Yeah. You know? um, so, uh, and Sharna always talked about how amazing his object work was. Right. You know? So it was like, that was a goal at the time. And I'm jealous um, that Sharna thought that she, he did good object work. <laughs> <laughs> And the lesson we've learned today, it's not about them, it's about me. <laughs> so let's take some questions from the audience. Sure. Is we're here in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, so if uh, you've got a question about what we just did or for Craig, uh, just put your hands up and uh, we will, right here. Yeah, Craig, what are you most aware of in your head when you're in an improv scene, do you think? What am I most aware of? Um, <coughs> I think what has been said so far in the scene, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, I'm trying to honor everything that's been said before. Um, so, like when you change the name of the of the chef, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I try to remember of like what did he say before? He said Monier. <laughs> so, uh, so the, those are two different guys, you right. know, Renoir and Monier, you know, um, and not just to be a dick, but, uh, you know, just to, I'm conscious that the audience sits there and he's, hears and sees everything, so I want to make sure that I hear and see everything, because if you miss anything, then it undermines you in front of the audience uh, in tiny ways. But those are also golden opportunities, because what I was trying to say was Monet, I couldn't get it out, and then I was like, okay, well, I, I'm just going to have to justify it, yeah. you know, and it really... It makes you work a little harder, I think. Those are the best moments, yes. you know. And I think beginning improvisers uh, get flustered by mistakes because they're like, "Oh, perfect scenes out the window." You know. <laughs> now our scene can't be perfect anymore, you know. But for a veteran improviser, when uh, any mistake is the best thing that could possibly right. happen, because then you get to show the audience how you're going to use that thing and develop it and make it work right and that's know? different than as you get older and you've been doing it for a long time and you try to manufacture the mistakes <laughs> which are, I, it's, it's really yes uh, we got another question uh, right here uh, you both worked with Doug Close and I've, been, I've only read about Doug Close in books and he's a, he's a, a legend he's 10 foot tall and 3 feet <laughs> wide and all sure. that <laughs> Uh, and, but what you're saying seems to kind of contradict some of his very hard and fast rules that he would say. So, do you, do you think that there's a progression in the art form, or how much of what he said that I read in a book still pertains as hard and fast as in, the, in today? Where are you talking about truth and comedy specifically, uh, or you're talking about comedy, or reading art? Read articles, and he always talks about playing to the top of the improviser. Right. Or talk to the yeah. audience's head and all these kinds of things, but he also you're telling stories about how he'd stand up for an hour, which would drive me absolutely <laughs> fucking batshit crazy. Yeah, I had to go and do a workshop like that. So, where's the legend? Where's the myth and the legend separated into the great teacher that we all always hear that? 
some of these. He was he was a great teacher. I don't want to give the impression that uh, that he wasn't. And I really did feel like those uh, those anecdotes that he was more he was happy to talk about them. But I really felt like he was prodded by the students rather than like uh, I'm just up here wasting time. You know, um, I studied with him for about a year consecutively. I took his class five straight times. And uh, and I think and different people in Chicago at the time had varying experiences with him. So I think he was like turned on by some classes and not turned on by by some others. You know, some he would just would yell at people and kick them out of his class. Other times he'd be really inspired. I found the times that I worked with him that he was really inspired and. He didn't have a lot of hard and fast rules for improv other than the treat the audience like poets and geniuses and play at the top of your intelligence and just expand your mind as to what is possible within improv. So I, I always felt like he, he was a real artist. But was he a good hands-on teacher? Uh, he didn't give you a lot. He didn't give you any... Uh, any back rubs. You know? <laughs> I'm um, talking about stage time. I'm talking about technique. I feel like I got, I mean, this is years ago, but I feel like I got a fair amount of stage time. You know, like we would do a lot of like just crazy group experimental stuff like the banging on chairs where everybody was up there for 45 minutes, you know. So I'm like, I, I definitely feel like at the end of class that I, I was up there for a while. But in terms of getting like individual notes from him or, or stuff like that, that really wasn't his thing. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, right here. Uh, yeah, um, you were saying that you taught under Adam McKay, right? He was my coach for a while, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, and, like, I think I heard a story on, might have been your podcast, uh, where he was talking about, like, he would do all this crazy experimental stuff, like, have a show, go out in the streets, and there'll be, like, a protest, and, like, one yeah. of the guys, I think it was Horatio Sands, got arrested. Yeah. He gets in the cop car, and he's like, oh, I'm just an actor, I'm just an actor. Did you guys like partake in any stuff like that? Like, oh no, what was the no, no. Uh, well, those were the early days of the Upright Citizens Brigade in Chicago, where it was almost like um, pranks, and uh, there was another thing where Adam was gonna kill himself. You know, so we have like you put posters around town, like on uh, February 9th, nineteen ninety-two, Adam McKay will throw himself off of a building. Um, so it was all these stunts. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to belittle them by calling them pranks, you know. But like to me, like that's what it is, and that always makes me supremely uncomfortable. So I never. Well, because there was a part that wasn't like embraced that. in the improv community, you know. Like my generation was kind of was a little skeptical of w what they were doing because it was so new. I mean, it, yeah, it was not in mainstream improv at that point what they were doing. Yeah. And this was more of their sketch shows anyway. And he, he was just a provocateur. Like, he just wanted to provoke the public in, in some way. And I think, uh, I think that's cool. It's not my thing. Right. But it was, more, it was really more performance art, wouldn't you say, yeah. than, than anything. Yeah. We had a question back here. Yeah. Uh, you talk about working into the character brain. Um, is that something you feel like you need to get there with your partner on stage? Or if, is there a disconnect that happens if you're in your character brain and your partner is still thinking uh, all the improv? Things. Is that something you guys ever like run away from each other? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the good thing with the groups that I play with is that we all have that mentality and we've also played with each other for years and we literally can read each other's minds when we go there on stage. Like, I played with Bob Dassey for 20 plus years, so like, there's never any doubt in my mind. I know exactly what he's going for at all times. When you're playing with you know, I'm in the next show, I'm going to play with people I've never played with before, you know, so I don't have that instant connection with them. Um, I always say. 
So you know, you're probably not going to do things where you're just kind of like staring at each other for a little bit and like let's find it organically. You know, um, I say with people who are newer to playing with each other, just be as overt and clear as possible if you have any idea. You know, um, so you know if you go into the scene knowing anything, tell your partner everything you know. Because <laughs> you know? otherwise, you're holding on to the like this preformed idea, and then they start doing things, and you're like, oh, but <laughs> we were going to do a uh, chef, uh, you know. Uh, Apprentice scene. Let me. I bet I could still fit it in. You know, <laughs> and you can't. You know, um, but I think you know what's fun about playing with people you've never played with is that it's it's scary in a good way. You know, and uh, you know you get to feel out different people's energy, and uh, that that's exciting in a way. Great. We got a question right here, and then we'll go back. How is playing improv on stage different from playing it on television? And why do you think we don't see it more on television? Well, I do think that, uh, you know, nobody loves improv more than I do. Nobody. <laughs> uh, but, um, I definitely think that there's, you know, theatrical improv that's meant to be done live in front of audiences, and I don't necessarily think that that needs to be on television, you know, um, because it's, it's something that's unique to the theater. And um, I think that using improv as a writing tool is great. I think that uh, having people riff uh, could work and it might not, you know. I think it's more and more prevalent on film now than it's ever been, which I think is mostly a positive thing, but I think it leads to a laziness and sloppiness in some of these big budget comedies where it's like, oh, we'll just get Vince Vaughn and we'll have him riff and do a bunch of stuff, you know. That to me is not improv, you know. Um, but like Curb Your Enthusiasm, you know, or uh, you know, Christopher Guest stuff of like they're working off of very tight, um, pre-written synopses, so they know exactly what's happening in the scene. They just don't know what they're going to say. They know their characters, they know their relationships, they know the setup, uh, and then they improvise the the dialogue. And I think that's a good thing. Now you coached for an independent film. You coached three actors to improvise. What was what was that like? Uh, it's called The Kings of Summer, and it's playing right now in a, maybe a theater near you. <laughs> I don't know if, if it's come to Omaha yet. Um, but it's, uh, it's about these three kids who uh, go and live in the woods and build a house. Um, and the director was a guy who believed in improv, and he wanted, he wanted his kids to appear natural and real and not be, you know, and to be able to improvise without worry, being worried about having to come up with jokes. Um, so uh, I just... I really didn't work on their characters at all. I just did basic, I just took them through some improv classes and did the exercises I would do for any improv class just to get the three of them used to playing with each other, to, to, trust, an ensemble. to trusting each other, building an ensemble, and feeling like uh, if, uh, if they went past the scene that was written for them, they would then know what their character would say and do next. I got a question over here. Yeah, uh, I've always just kind of wondered personally what you think of yourself I have a high opinion. And this is actually kind of into that, I guess, because I want to know, as far as if you've ever judged yourself, what your own, as a teacher, your own weakness would be. As a teacher, specifically? Yeah. Um, well, learning to be a teacher is like learning to be an improviser. Like, it involves a lot of failure and a lot of mistakes along the way. You know, as an improviser, I've made thousands upon thousands of horrific mistakes in front of paying audiences. And that's how you get better, because you never forget those moments. And I was teaching and coaching in Chicago probably well before I was qualified to. 
But that was good because I was able to make a lot of mistakes along the way. My biggest mistake early on uh, was too much talking and too much note giving, uh, particularly after shows where, you know, if it was a bad show, it's like, well, let's talk about it for an hour. <laughs> if it's a bad show, everybody wants to get the hell out of there. Like, point out a couple things and, you know, we'll get them next time and, and send them off, you know. And so I think I've gotten much better at efficient note giving and in class trying to give the students as much stage time as possible. And something that I, I took from Sharna Halpern, which I think is a great note, is that students learn a lot more from success than they do from failure. So rather than watching them do a seven minute scene that's clearly failing, and then at the end of like, so you guys knew that sucked, right? You know, that's not helpful to anyone. You know, if you have an adjustment that can be made within a minute of a scene of just like, hey, try this. So you're you know, talking about side coaching. I'm talking about side coaching, and I think you should do it early and often, you know, and, uh, but I don't want to, uh, sorry, I don't want to make it sound like, hey, do this. If I was in this scene, I'd do this. It's encouraging them to go further with the choices they're already doing. So like, hey, you're already doing this, do it more. Or did you notice that? That was already there. So like, you've got to point out things that are already there in the scene that they haven't acknowledged or that they toyed around with and then abandoned. Um, so it's not going to help them with like, hey, you could do this. Well, that's what I'd do if I was in there, but that's not going to help them because they would never think of what I would do. You know, it's, it's encouraging them to further their own choices. You said something I thought was really interesting about... I think it's the level four at I.O. In, in Los Angeles. It's your favorite class because the last class, everybody in the class gives feedback to the students. Yeah. Now, I have struggled with this, and now I will say, I'm, I, of course, I'm jealous of you for getting this, but how, because when I try to get students in my class to give each other feedback, there's like the resistance of, I can't do it because I'm not supposed to give notes to other actors. Mm. How have you been able to make it succeed in your classroom? Well, I have a specific phrasing that I use. Maybe that helps. So, if, like, I get Jimmy up, and uh, first I say, compliment Jimmy. Okay. Um, uh, what do you enjoy about his work as an improviser? What are his strengths? Um, then what are his go-tos? What does he do often? Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, what would you like to see from him? Um, or what is something you haven't seen him do? Um, so, you know, it's definitely not in the realm of like, hey, when you were doing that scene with me, you totally denied me of like, that's giving a note. But of like, uh, I've never seen you be high status. Or uh, I've never seen you uh, play vulnerable or be a woman, you know. Um, that kind of stuff is, uh, it's, it's just truthful. <laughs> this is what we've observed from you in class. So it's more just like factual stuff rather than this is my opinion. <laughs> of you. So if you can keep it in the realm of like, what have you seen? Mm -hmm. um, and then for the improviser of like, it's sometimes you have no consciousness of what you actually project to other people. I will say it's overwhelmingly more supportive and positive than you would ever think it would be. So of like, people are like, oh, I look confident. I feel like shit up there. But of like, if you appear confident, then that's as good as being confident. Um, and sometimes people aren't conscious of their go-tos or their habits. Or sometimes people are like, oh, I, I started out playing only high status. I've been doing low status intentionally because my last teacher told me never do high status. And then you realize that it's all about balance. You know, the pendulum kind of swings wildly from level to level. What, what do you do when the student comes in and says, I just took 
the last class with whoever the teacher is, and they told me that I'm supposed to do it this way, and you know, you, 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 how, how do you deal with that? I say, while you're in my class, assume that I'm absolutely right about everything. <laughs> um, and only half jokingly, because it's like, you're, you're taking my class to get my perspective on things. Try everything that I suggest of you, try it my way. Some things will speak to you, other things will not, but you've tried it. Um, and then you'll take Jimmy's class, assume he's right about absolutely everything, try everything that he asks of you. Because again, ultimately, they're gonna reform the art form and they're, they're gonna steal the stuff they like from me, the stuff they like from you, the stuff they like from Besser or whoever, right. and form their own version of improv, you know? So like, the last thing I wanna do is turn them into a cookie cutter version of me and say, you've gotta follow my dogma, because I don't, I don't really have a dogma, <laughs> you know? I've got things that I believe strongly in, but I, I try to help the individual more than say there's there's a right way to do improv and it's this. Uh, one more question here. Uh, when you were becoming an improviser, what was your biggest crisis of confidence and how did you get out of it? There were times early on in Chicago um, where if you weren't on like an established team, you'd be cut from teams and then reformed onto other teams with people you'd never played with before, you know, and you were kind of at the mercy of the theater. Sharna would cast you in different ensembles. So I think I it took me maybe five or six teams to be on a team that stuck together for more than like two months. So that was very frustrating. And there was one time where I was on a team when I, you know, I kind of looked around and was like, oh, I'm on the loser team. Because you know? <laughs> like, it was clear of like, oh, this was not a vote of confidence in my work. Um, that I was placed on this particular team. Um, and then, uh, and I got a little, uh, I got a little down about that, and I was like, all right, I'm just gonna do this show. We had two shows scheduled, I think, I'm gonna do these two shows, and I was like, I guess that's it, at Improv Olympic, because I got the message from them that they must not think I'm very good if they put me on this team. And I happened, and Adam McKay happened to be my coach on that team, and I happened to have, uh, a great show, <laughs> the next show out, and he was like, uh, this guy's too good for this team, put him on this other team. <laughs> so, uh, so there was something, there was something that was maybe freeing about, well, this is the lowest I can go, you know, like, I hit kinda like, and even then, I'm like, I was on a team. There were other people who weren't on teams that were probably having a bigger crisis of confidence, but that to me was a crisis of confidence, and I guess I responded by like, not caring so much and just going out there and, and doing the work and, and having fun, you know? But like anything that you want to get really good at, there's going to be setbacks and disappointments uh, and frustrations along the way. And I think you just have to, to keep your passion and keep your joy for it, you know? And particularly improv, comedy in particular, should be joyful <laughs> at all times. And I told my class who studied with me earlier today this, you know, don't forget as you're working on this of like while you're trying to get it right, be really good at it. Um, don't forget to have fun along the way because it's uh, having the, the joy and playfulness that children have and bringing the intelligence and experience we have as adults uh, to that. So I think it's that combination. What do you do when you lose the joy? Because we all do. We've been doing it for a long time. I. I I don't. <laughs> I haven't lost the joy. Oh my god, I am more fucked up than. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's a great way to and there you have it.
the 50th episode of Improv Nerd. See, I'm not minimizing it. And I want to thank our special guest, Craig Kakowski. And I want to thank all the good people down in Omaha and the Omaha Improv Festival and Backline Improv, uh, Dylan and Frank, for making us feel so welcome. Uh, also, I want to thank our producer here in Chicago, Ben Caprero, and our home base uh, here in Chicago as well, Stage 773. And the official hotel of Improv Nerd is Hotel Lincoln. If you get a chance, it is such a cool hotel, and it's just blocks away from Second City and a cab ride from the Annoyance Comedy Sports and I.O. So check that out. And actually, they just got voted in Chicago Magazine as Best Neighborhood Bar on the Roof there, so check that out. Hotel Lincoln. If you need more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my Improv Nerd blog, and my award-winning Artist Low Comedy classes, you know you can always go to jimmycorain.com. And if you get a chance today, and even tomorrow, please like our Improv Nerd fan page. Uh, just go to Improv Nerd and like us. It really helps with my low self-esteem. I want to thank you guys for listening and your support and all the great emails I, I've gotten uh, since doing this podcast. And until next time, remember, walk, don't run. Jimmy's a nerd, he's a nerd, oh yeah. Jimmy's a nerd, he's a nerd. Hello. I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, The New Frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins one day. Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, oh my he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. 